Hi, and welcome to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I am your host, Steve Bissam. I'm an author and mental health counselor. Are you curious about therapy? Do you feel there is a lot of mystery about therapy? Do you wonder what your therapist is doing and why? The goal of this podcast is to make therapy and psychology accessible to all by using real language and straight-to-the-point discussions. This podcast wants to remind you to take care of your mental health, just like you would your physical health. Therapy should not be intimidating. It should be a great way to better health. I will demystify what happens in counseling, discuss topics related to mental health, and discussions you can have with your therapist. I also want to introduce psychology in everyday life, as I feel most of our lives are enmeshed in psychology. I want to introduce the subtle and not-so-subtle ways psychology plays a factor in our lives. It will be my own mix of thoughts as well as special guests. So join me on this discovery of therapy and psychology. For episode two of Finding Your Way Through Therapy, I interviewed a friend of mine. His name is Jason Ball. He's a police officer currently at Framingham Police Department serving as the school resource officer. I got to tell you that I, everyone that I know calls him J-Ball. I don't know of anyone who calls him Jason other than his mom. And I think that Jay has such an interesting career. I met him in 2000 or so. And in 2004, he actually graduated from the police officer class in Quincy, Massachusetts. He got his bachelor's of science in criminal justice from the University of Massachusetts. He also is certified in mental health first aid since fall 2018. He's someone that has worked several positions across different departments from the MBTA to Milford Police Department to Framingham Police Department. He's been a detective in both Framingham and Milford. He also has been involved with multiple drug task force, and he has always been very involved with that stuff. He is currently also the law enforcement liaison for the Middlesex County Veterans Treatment Court Office in Framingham, Massachusetts. He helps individuals who served our country in the armed forces receive treatment instead of non-treatment-based decisions typically imposed during court proceedings. He's also been recently appointed to the Governor's Opioid Recovery and Remediation Fund Advisory Council. He's instructed many people. I've seen him do it with civilians, including young kids. He has also worked with other police officers to instruct them on mental health, as well as narcotic and investigative stuff. I've truly enjoyed doing this interview with him, and I thought that we gelled well. We actually got to know a few things we didn't know about each other and stuff that we both knew that we never talked about. So it was a pleasure to talk to him. So please let's jump into this interview with Jason Ball, officer at Framingham Police Department. Enjoy. So welcome to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. My name is Steve Bissau, and I'm here with Jay Ball. I, I, wanted, I think we were talking right before we started recording. I know you. We've known each other for a long time. I'm not going to call you officer, but I guess I should go officer Jay Ball. But welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. Yeah. And then uh, like we'll probably get into in a little while. I'm a very informal person. It's Jay Ball. And, you know, it's been a long, what, 20, 21 years. It's amazing. And you know, we've done a lot of stuff together. And it's, it's amazing after all those years coming together in something like this and as important as this in mental health. And I really think that me and you have known each other working. You worked in your field for all that time. I've worked in my field for all that time. I think we did that one thing for the Milford P Police Department for the the young people who were doing the police department stuff. I yeah. think that's the only time we actually really worked hand in hand on something. Yeah, there were probably were two roads at one point. I'm sure we were on road A and B, and then we started to go probably each one to the left, one to the right. And like I said, it, it all came back to here. And if you asked me when we met, even when we did that thing in Milford, I would have never, even probably about four years ago, thought we'd be having this conversation. Well, you know, I'm just happy that you're here and it's just fun. You know, I've, I've known you for all this time. I know your bio, but it, it is really impressive. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen in the last few years, me and you have always had a great relationship talking about mental health, but I've definitely seen it increase, especially with the first responders and all the work that you do there. So 
is there anything at one point that really triggered your interest that made you start do more mental health work with first responders or was it just a interest that you've had all that time? I'd love to say it was like an epiphany one day I was sitting in the classroom in 2018 and I said, geez, you know what? You're trying to teach police officers mental health first aid. And I was like, police are awful to talk to. They're awful to teach. I'm one of them. It's horrendous. And I kind of, I asked, and I'll bring up Caitlin Dehe, who I teach with some classes. And I said, would you like a police officer? And she was like, it's, it's actually part of our class. I joke about it. It's like, I'm the last person, but I would like to say it's 2018, but I noticed, especially during that class and, you know, having yourself as a friend, my wife was in the mental health field. A lot of your mutual friends, you fought it for a long time from being in the military, myself being in the military and then being a police officer. You don't think of a lot of things that happened to you over your years. You just deal with it. And you know, that's part of it. You deal with it. And I think that when I started taking that mental health first aid class, I went back and thought of a lot of things that affected me over the years. And then all of a sudden hearing some of professionals like yourself talking and others in the mental health field talk and say, listen, yeah, you may have been blowing this off for a long time, but you start to think of things tying into each other and having a dramatic effect on your life. I mean, it's, you know, what I find, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I find that the work as a first responder is one type of stuff that you see or you hear and it kind of builds up. But then you also have a personal life, a private life, and that also kind of plays a factor into your mental health. And that just like accumulates and accumulates. I know that the old joke that I have with some of my clients is that, you know, police officer or firefighter by knowing that they have three wives or more, um, <laughs> you know, and I'm and, still and, on one. I'm, I'm <laughs> hey, I'm pulling for you. You know that I, I've known Donna Marie for a long time. So, but I, at the end of the day, I think that that's, and I don't know what your thoughts are, but I feel like it's not just the job. It's outside the job and all that just accumulates with time. Never mind if you've served this country like you did. I look and, and I re- just part of the mental health first aid, uh, and I'm sure the statistics have changed. I know they're updating them, but one thing that jumps out at me and I spend some time on it when I start teaching is 40% higher domestic violence rate than the general population for you know police officers. And I kind of break that down a little bit when I talk to everyone. And it's funny and, and not to, I'm not trying to toot horns or whatnot, but it's like, you break it down to that. It's like, you're out there. Whether people like police or not, you're out there, you're doing anything, and now everything's recorded. So you're on your best behavior, which you should be anyways, but even more now that everyone does record, everyone's watching, but then you go home and that door closes. And maybe you're just trying to chill out by yourself. Maybe watching Sports Center, as we know, uh, goes over and over. You know, Every half hour, it's the same show. And then next thing you know, the one person probably in that household that cares about you, the one person in the world that probably cares about you other than your parents you know, it's just making sure you get to bed, get some sleep or, or whatever. And next thing you know, everything you've built up inside from that shift, whatever you may have dealt with, whatever you held in when that phone was watching or you were on your best behavior, as, as people would say, you explode on that person. And I, I try and explain that as that's why we're 40% higher and not saying any other, you know, profession is any different. Many professions are stressful and no one is better or worse than the other, but I can say as a police officer, that is one area where it's like, I'll describe that. You know, that's how that we're that much higher. But I also think that, you know, and this is something I've talked about having worked with individuals who've had domestic violence or issues at home in general, whether being a good father or a good mother, or because we're going to say males here, but obviously I work with females who are in the first responder, police, fire. One of the things that I also see is that you also explode on the person that's the safest around you, whether there was a camera on you or not. It's usually the safest person that you go after because you cannot do it in public. And when you're with a bunch of officers, there's, you know, we'll go into stigma a little later on. I know that's important to you, but it's also like you can't yell at an officer. If he does, you might blow it off or you got to make a joke about it just to survive the moment. But the safest person to really process your stress is the one at home. And unfortunately, that's also the person you feel the most comfortable exploding on. So I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but that's how I've perceived it. No, no, I, I also agree with that. And I probably will steal that next time I go out teaching mental health first aid. Uh, it's one thing. No, it's huge. You explode in that person because that's the one person there. And I keep, I always use that one person there, but yeah, you feel safer on that person one. And I'm not talking, you know, yes, things do become in some instances, unfortunately, are physical, but even just that verbal argument, it is, you trust that person and you figure 
if I can explode here, even though it's absolutely probably the wrong place, wrong time, it's not right, you shouldn't be doing it, it happens. Unfortunate as it is, but exactly like you said, yeah, it's the one person probably you trust and the one person that you're safe around. Yeah. And you know, and for those of you who may not work in this type of field, domestic violence includes also verbal violence. And, you know, the domestic violence is not just hitting someone. So we, you know, just want to clarify that for those who may not know. And I think that that's what happens. And the other thing that I always think about about the the mental health that affects first responders, you can correct me if I'm wrong too, is that, you know, you might do three to 11, 11 to seven, seven to three or whatever, but those shifts get repetitive. And then there's kind of like a, and then, well, there's a detail to take here. Details are when you see police officers on the side of the road, for example, just directing traffic or whatnot. And then you take that on and then you get addicted to those. And there's like other stressors that come in. So it's not even just the work. It's the extra work that comes with being a police officer. And, even though you're not wearing your badge today, well, you can't see it, but I promise he's not wearing his badge. You're still wearing the badge. Yes. Yeah. You bring up details is a good point. Overtime is a good point. You know, people see police officers' salaries and like, those guys get paid way too much. And a lot of that is details over that's that's that officer working 80, 90 hours a week, 60, 70 hours a week. Sometimes it can be controlled. Sometimes an officer's in a special unit. Like myself, I was a detective for a long, long time. And it is an addiction. Even just lately, someone called me, hey, geez, Jay, this person's got a gun and blah, blah, blah. And you love it. If you love what you do, you're addicted and you'll leave your house on Saturday on your day off at seven o'clock at night to go and write a search warrant. It's addictive, but it does all build up inside you. Yes. And the last point on mental health, the other thing too, we've been in social settings multiple times, me and you. How many times have I seen, and I still, I can think of one of my friends that does it all the time. Hey, you're a police officer. I have a question for you. And you're like, okay, the first one is good, but once you're up to number 27 in the same week, it gets to you. And I don't know, I'm not even in your field, but I don't know if that also is another stressor that increases the mental health stressors on people because they expect you to know what policing is, what the law is, what the conviction is going to be, how long they're going to be in jail, which jail. I mean, it it gets a little strange, I think, for you guys. It does. And I hate to always, not hate to, uh, it's funny, I relay back to the mental health first aid and talking to people about it and not an indictment on anyone's field, but I'll sometimes refer to a financial analyst or a plumber. I'll pick any, any field. And I'll say, when's the last time you went to a, a party, no matter what the feeling was around police officers. And someone asked the plumber how to put a T, you know, a, a T joint in or a, you know, whatever. I'm not a plumber. I don't know. Or they asked a financial analyst, Hey, what's a good stock to grab? Say, they don't. They want that exciting story from the police. And I, and I can tell you, yeah, there's been a lot of them in my 17 years. However, some of the exciting ones, you don't want to rehash. And I don't want to say exciting. They're, they're, usually when the police get involved, it's people's worst day. People don't call the police because they say, hey, it's J-Ball there. I want to say hi. No, they call us because they're having a bad day. And those stories, though car chases people talk about and, and what's the worst thing you've ever been to? Well, if you ask me, and I won't get into it right now, if it comes up later, we will, but what's the worst thing you've ever been to? I don't want to talk about that. That's not what I, I don't want to. I, and, and you see police officers, and I bring it up in the training, how many of you avoid gatherings? How many of you, when you're off duty, don't want to go to a family function, a friend function? Because these things do happen. I'm not saying don't go up to the police officer and ask them you know, questions because, yeah, it happens. But it's like sometimes the questions that are asked, it's like they could be not misinterpreted, but triggering would be a, would, would be a good thing. you know. And I think that's part of why some police officers like to be with other police officers and firefighters want to be other firefighters when they go in gatherings because they risk less having those questions. They, don't, they won't get asked these things. One of the things that you know, I don't think you've ever said, Steve, this is what you need to do, but we've had this conversation on semi-form. I've never asked you for a story, I think. You've given me stories. That. Yeah, I could have given you stories, yeah. But I never <laughs> asked for a story. And when they come to therapy, I do the same thing. I never ask for a story. Yeah. I'm like, they're going to come with it. And if there is a story, that's great. And if there's no story and they want to build a, the, the relationship, because you know, we'll get into the stigma, but I know that you know, going to see a shrink for your mental health there's a stigma that goes with that. So for me to go, let's talk about, I don't want to trigger anyone, but you know, I've uh, been to a, a SIDS call with a firefighter and that's like, 
For some people, that's triggering, especially you have kids that age and so on and so forth. So I never ask that question. I always ask, why are you here? And people say, that's not a good question. I think that's an excellent question because that way I'm not leading anyone to anything. But I think that with first responders, they expect me to go, all right, well, did you love your mom or uh, whatever? And I never do that. And they always go like, you don't, you're just talking to me. Well, isn't that what therapy is all about? But anyway, so a little bit about mental health and I'm happy we're talking about that. One of the things that you talked about, you touched on it a little bit with the cameras and everybody being on that. And we obviously know about the, the stories that you hear from different areas of police officers. And there's a lot of different pressures that are on first responders, particularly police right now. How are officers and first responders in general dealing with that extra pressure, not only having the camera on, but other stuff that goes with that? And unfortunately, there's, there's a lot of different stories that go out there. And obviously, there's sometimes an overgeneralization that occurs. And like one bad officer, obviously the rest of the officers are all bad. And that's a lot of pressure for you guys. So how are you guys dealing with that? How do you feel you're going when you're doing your classes of first aid, mental health and stuff like that? I'll speak for my, on this one, I'll speak for myself. I won't generalize it, but myself, you could ask me a few years ago and I said, no, I don't want a body cam. And that's not because I'm doing anything wrong. And another, another thing I want to say about this is you should always be in your best behavior. There shouldn't be a camera over your shoulder or on your chest or on your, you know, your visor, your hat to show you're doing a good job. And we can go into a three hour conversation about body cams. Personally, like I said, a few years ago, what do I want? Now I do. I, I would want one, one for the public to see what happens every day. And, and unfortunately, you know, to protect myself, I go out there every day. Yes. I'm a police officer. I've been in some you know, drug units and stuff and people don't like you but you still go out and do the right thing every day. And if you do the right thing, you shouldn't have to worry if there's a camera on you. You shouldn't have to worry if there's you know, a body cam attached to you. You shouldn't have to worry about any of that stuff. And this is where I'll divert from my personal opinion to bringing up Chief Baker in Framingham. When I lateraled over to Framingham Police from Milford, I believe he's still a sergeant. And I thought the guy was in the military. He's just, he brings that command presence about him, but he would end every roll call with, remember, you're being recorded. And not that people are going to go out and do the wrong thing, but keep your wits about you. Do the right thing. Yes, there's a part of us that need to be warriors. So I, I know there's a big push for the, the whole warrior thing to be pushed up. There's a piece of us. But at the end of the day, we're guardians. And that's the way you need to look at it. We're there to help people. Yes, sometimes things get violent. Sometimes things get hairy. However, at the end of the day, we're there to help people. And by him saying that always made you think, do the right thing. Okay. Even though, and I think my parents may have said this and don't quote me, but someone will do the right thing, even though no one's watching. Yeah. And that's a very good quote. I, it's some, one of the things that I always remind myself too, if no one's watching, I'm doing the right thing. Nothing can, bad can happen. I'm just going to continue a little bit on that. But first, you know, we're listening to Jay Ball. I'm talking with Jay Ball. I'm Steve Bison. This is finding your way through therapy want to continue a little bit about the talking about the stuff that happens. One of my favorite sayings to some of my clients, obviously are first responders, but there's also clients who are not first responders. And what I remind them when they start talking about stuff, I say, look, understandably, I think that there's 95% or so of first responders. They want to go to work, do their job, do the best they can and go home. Unfortunately, there's 5% that may not be doing that. And the same thing goes for therapists. There's 95% of therapists that do the right thing. There's 5% that's not so good. But at the end of the day, I think that if you look at every profession, there's always going to be those exceptions. And unfortunately for what I find with first responders, particularly with police, they look at that 5% and say, well, they're all like that. And that's that's a lot of pressure for you guys. You talk about a body camera, but what about that overgeneralization? How do you guys deal with that? Because Again, I've worked with you. I've worked. I, I was in Framingham for a long time doing some mental health evaluations and and some stuff around that. All the guys that I knew are pretty good, and it's a different pressure because that's not at all my perception of my experience with you guys. Yeah, yeah. First off, and you know, we've talked before. I'm born and raised in Massachusetts. I left for a while. Not a huge fan of mass, but I got to say one thing: we we have, and not putting down any other state because I have police officers that I am friends with all over this country, all over this continent. I will say we do a phenomenal job of policing in Massachusetts. I think we're one of the most highly educated police forces as a state in the country by far. But some of the other, you know, the other stresses that I, I think of is I think it was Chris Rock or comedian said, geez, 
you know, if only 1% of the police officers are bad, imagine if we had that with airline pilots. And yes, funny, anecdotal, I get it. But the law is very complex. Escalation of incidents, you know, okay, great, we're at a level of, it could be assaultive bodily harm, which is on our defensive tactics. Well, you got to come back down again. It's de-escalated. So it's more than like you joke about that, the plane comment, okay, you know, 1% of pilots, you know, are bad. That's, that's bad for all the passengers, but policing like many other, there's other occupations that are like that. The law's complex dealing with people's complex. Even the, the big thing is de-escalation and I'm all for it. You know, I've been involved in stuff and I, I don't try and talk about myself. I let other people do that, but um, there's been scenarios where de-escalation tactics have have worked and they haven't worked. So those are all different things. I can go on and on about it, but those, those are stressors. Am I doing the right thing? Is someone going to second guess me? Yes. The person had a firearm out. Do I pull my firearm? Do I, I believe, and I feel like I can say there's a lot of second guessing going on in policing and, and it's stressful and it's, it's burdensome to the officers on the street. Well, I think that one of the conversations I remember me and you having privately is that I can train you at the academy for seven years. You will not be able to repeat every single scenario that you're going to face on a daily day basis. And I think that that's part of a little bit of what I find with the pressures of the, I say the media, but I think the general population, it also plays a factor. And like you, you cannot rehearse human behavior. And obviously I'm in the same field in human behavior anyway. And that's kind of something I remind a lot of people is that you can't rehearse human behavior. So I think that that's the hard part when I hear about X, Y, Z. I don't want to talk about any specifics, but I think that mental health and first responders, the same thing. Like people come into my office. The greatest thing about my job is I don't know what the next words out of their mouths are going to be. And the worst part of my job is I don't know what the next words of their mouths are going to be. And I think that you face that too. And I think that police may have a lot of scrutiny because of that, but I don't think it's a lack of training, whether it is Massachusetts or anywhere in, across the country or across this continent and obviously in Canadian and American now. And I know a lot of people across, but I, how do we respond to people who don't get that? That's okay. See, you've been throwing me ground balls all the time. I, I, I don't know. Hey, you know what? So what's the, what's the third question, man? I got to get yeah, there. Jesus, <laughs> um, so I don't know. You brought up a couple of good points. It's all fluid. Everything changes by the minute. Things can escalate. Things can de-escalate. There is a lot of work to do it in policing. Obviously, when uh, please, I don't want to embarrass myself and start quoting Sir Francis Peel, but you know, <laughs> the people of the police and the police of the people, you know, or or whoever. I'm gonna my criminal justice 101 professor is gonna lose it if I just got that wrong. But you know, the people want change, and I get that. And Things change over time. I've got younger officers go, should I leave policing altogether? And I'm like, that's up to you. That's a choice you need to make. Will things change? Sure. Are things rough right now? And, and I know I've got people conversely on the other side that don't like the police or, or you know, we have to fund the police and all that. I get that. And one thing is I, I, I've learned not to diminish anyone else's feelings. Uh, I may not agree with different things other people say. And sometimes, and you know me well, I strongly disagree with a lot of things people say, but that's the way they feel. So everything's a stressor. And I think I've kind of diverted a little off of the question you've asked, but there's things we can change here. But even with 21st century policing, the first pillar, you know, building trust and legitimacy, okay? A lot of damage has been done on purpose, maybe sometimes by some officers who are just not good. But like we said, Maybe it's the sign of the times. So that building trust and legitimacy, another one of the pillars, community, getting in with the community. We do something in, in Framingham now. It's a top-down thing that we, I think they call them parking walks. I'm assigned to the schools now, so I'm not involved in that so much. But you know, the officers will have an area. Park, walk, talk to people, you know, you know, think to the 1950s where, you know, someone's out watering their lawn and the officer's walking down the street and pulls up to their fence. That's basically what they want us to do. And I, I think it's a good idea because a sarcastic thing for people to say to each other is, yeah, check your beat if you don't know your, your, your streets, but maybe you should know your streets. 
So it's going out there and, and building upon the tenants of community policing, you know, building that trust and legitimacy, using social media. We're, you know, we're in 2021. It's time to use social media. Okay. I've seen some police departments do it phenomenally. I've seen some that don't have anything. I've seen some in the middle. And I can go on about the, you know, the pillars of policing. But the last one, and we're kind of may touch on it a little while, I think, is officer wellness and safety. So it, it all makes a circle. And I think officer wellness and safety are going to make policing better as a whole, not just for police officers. You know, people may say that's a selfish thing to say, but I think an officer wellness and safety is including mental health, not just physical health, is going to change policing in, in a way where everyone benefits. I agree wholeheartedly. And I got to admit to you also that, you know me, I'm opinionated also. <laughs> and to me, I think it's also making the police do police work and not necessarily like running after the bad guys, which is what, you know, goddamn TV does. And I gets on my nerves personally. You're talking about community policing, knowing the beat and all that. But also like if someone is homeless and needs help, we don't need to involve the police. We can have social workers. We can have mental health counselors. We can have other people help in the community so the police can get to know their, their neighborhood, talk to people and be humans. Because when you're running from a call for your homelessness, a mental health call, and yes, they should be involved in some ways, but they don't have to be always involved. And I think that finding that balance, you talk about the four pillars, I talk about balance in everything we do. I don't think police should never be involved with mental health, but I also don't think that police should be involved in all mental health. I don't think that mental health counselors can fix everything in the community, but they can be involved in the community. It's a balance in my opinion. And obviously I'm a little biased in that way, but I kind of... That's kind of where I see the, the future of policing is that how many times have I got calls from even my clients who say, hey, such and such is going down in my town, but we don't have a social worker. We don't have a mental health guy. What do you recommend? And it's sad that we don't have social workers and mental health doing part of that work anyway, not the whole work, but part of it. Yeah. And I had to stop writing on one of my papers. I think I got to 50 pages for when I graduated I'm a big, and you and I have discussed this before, I'm huge on co-response. I'm 100 million percent, if that's even a number I can use, bought in on it. No one's I'm, listening anyway. We're good. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally bought in on it. Having clinicians, mental health professionals travel with police is phenomenal. I think in our area, and I'm going to throw her a plug, Dr. Sarah Abbott. She's done a great job setting all that up. Who is she um, again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think there's Sorry, more Sarah, people. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Sarah. I think there's more people that don't know her. <laughs> I mean, do know her than don't. Right. Uh, phenomenal. But like her, her programming, mean, yes, you have the Memphis model, you know, CIT down in, in Memphis, Tennessee that is tracked. And I believe in it. I believe in that too. But the co-response model is phenomenal. And it's sad. And I don't want to paint a bad picture by saying to my class, most police officers, it's amazing because some guys that I look at, I'm like, what? You know, they don't have a problem driving a clinician around. They don't. It, it's amazing to see us. It, it's, it's part of our culture in Framingham and other places around. It's just, it is, that's Framingham. We have co-response and it's, it's awesome. But there's been some people around that'll be like, I've been a police officer XYZ number of years. I've been doing just fine. Well, first of all, I beg to differ. Maybe you haven't been. I'm not going to judge you as your career. However, why wouldn't, number one, selfishly make your life and your job easier, okay? And two, why wouldn't you want someone with you? Why wouldn't you want a trained mental health professional if I have a person that's having a problem, mental health crisis, why wouldn't I want a mental health professional there? Because, listen, you know my background, Steve. Detective, narcotics. Yeah. I love all that stuff. I still, to this day, I'll listen, let's do a search warrant. Let's rock and roll. Let's go get the bad guy. But is the person walking out in the street, talking to cars, throwing cans at cars with an obvious mental health condition, is that disorderly conduct? Now, there will be police officers that are going to say, Jay, you're out of your mind. Yes, every situation is different. But if I can get a clinician to that, and evaluate that person on the side of the road. Why would I go down the road of you know, disorderly conduct? And I laugh because one of the parts of the law element is tumultuous behavior. Now, I'm from Lawrence. I couldn't spell tumultuous without spell check. But every police officer that's made an arrest for disorderly conduct in their life has written tumultuous behavior. Great. 
great tumultuous, great word. Let's stop using. If we can divert it and get that person help through a mental health professional that's sitting right next to you by my cruiser, why aren't we doing it? You know, right. and I'm not saying we decriminalize things because that's so far from what I believe as a person, but why are we loading? I think it was Rikers Island, Cook County Jail, and LA County Jail have the largest mental health populations in the United States. I mean, like I said, I'm not walking around hugging trees, but there's a reason for that. Are we over-arresting people who should be going to hospitals? Now, you you just mentioned how, you know, mental health professionals. I totally agree. I think that co-response, like I said, I'm a huge believer in it. Well, I think that that's a little bit of with uh, finding your way through therapy, not only with the podcast, the book I wrote, is a lot about talking about those co-responses and being able to be all humans. I don't want to go into too many stories on that. I think that me and you may have to do another podcast because talking about the CIT model versus pre versus post arrest, talking about drug courts, talking about veterans court, which we'll touch on base a little bit because I know you work with them, but all that stuff about diversion is probably more important because we closed all the mental health hospitals and the jails became the biggest mental health hospitals in every, pretty much every state that closed all their mental health hospitals. And so, I mean, that's a whole subject in itself, but I want to come back to a little bit of what you talked about. And I think it's a, it goes a little, what I found when I first started. And again, Sarah Abbott, who was the founder of the jail diversion program in Framingham, I know that it's, it's been converted in many, 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 many places since then. And Sarah should call her doctor, but I've known Sarah for a long time. So I think I can call her. Sarah. I, f- I feel weird not saying doctor. Actually, no, I feel weird not saying Sarah, but it's like doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but she brought that in and I remember she invited me and she was so gracious and I really appreciated that. And one of the things that I felt, and I could be com- completely wrong and it's just a feeling and I'm allowed to feel whatever I want. When I went into some police departments, I think the stigma of having a mental health counselor had a lot to do with the stigma with mental health period, including for their own. So I'm wondering if stigma, like, you know, for me, I've seen stigma change a little bit. I've seen my, my referrals go up a little bit in the last maybe five years, but I think there's still a big stigma in in mental health for mental health in the first responders. And I was wondering if that was your experience as a change and what's your view on all that? I think it has changed just as recent as today. We had we had an incident the other day, and it was a newer officer that went to it. And a couple of officers came to me and said, geez, Jay, you check in on him. And I'm not a clinician. Right now, I'm just someone who cares. But yes, I have seen a change. I think that, and it's tough to say because being in Framingham, like you said, Dr. Abbott, but um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, our, exactly, our chief, that's how he, you know, that's how he was brought up through that. And I think we're getting leaders now that understand that. Yes, there's a stigma associated with it. There's still people, officers, there's still other departments. I won't even comment on size that there is a stigma associated with it. But I think we're getting more and more leaders. And I put my lieutenants, captains, you know, sergeants, whatever, not Framingham, but anywhere that come to my mental health first aid classes, I kind of put them on the spot and I say, listen, y'all get hired as patrol officers. And I always go selfishly and I say reality. Selfishly, you spent a lot of money to put this officer through the academy. That officer was of sound mind, morals, and everything when you hired that officer. But because Now they've got some mental health issues because of what they've done as a police officer or as a first responder. And I say this also in class, first responder, our dispatchers, we can't forget our dispatchers because before any officer is going to wherever that officer is going, that person is talking to that person on the other line of phone, listening to their emergency and not wanting to trigger anyone listening to this. I won't get into detail, but we need to remember that. So I think that more of our leaders now in 2021 our understanding of that. Yes, there are situations that things need to happen, but if we get officers and, and entry-level officers to buy in that, listen, treatment doesn't mean, you can't say my air quotes, crazy. You're not crazy, but maybe it's maintenance. Maybe you're maintaining yourself because you got hired and you were just fine. But I go through some of the things like hypervigilance, I go through things of carrying off duty. Did you do any of this? Uh, do you have a plan if something happens? 
when you're out with your family. These are all things I'll ask someone, hey, what did you do before you became a police officer? And I had one officer the other day who's been on for three years tell me she was a uh, office manager, a billing manager somewhere. And I said, hey, what was your biggest decision you had to make every day? And she said, without a doubt, it was making sure I had the right color heels on. And I said, okay, awesome. You just played right into my hand. What's the biggest decision you have now? And she goes, well, I can't, I can't narrow one down. We've changed. You change as a person. I always joke. I go, four officers try and sit down in a restaurant. Who's looking at which way do we sit? Oh, we put our uh, faces to the door. I said, who else does that? Do your friends that work at XYZ Corporation, do they do that? Do they have a plan if something bad happens? Do they carry off duty? Yes, in, in Massachusetts, obviously different than Texas and all these other states where you're open carry, but do we do things? Is that hypervigilance? Was it there when we worked in the billing office? Was it there when we worked for a siding company or a roofing company? No, it wasn't. You've changed. And it's to make those leaders understand that, and they are now, make those leaders understand that maybe with some encouraging treatment, destroying that stigma, allowing officers. And one thing I, I start off my training, I'm sorry I'm long-winded on this one, but it, it's a big one for me. If I start my class off, I put the PowerPoint off and I say, if I dropped right now, grasping my chest and fell to the ground, what would you do? And I get that silence because police are horrible to talk to and teach, I should say. And then- um both. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they'd say, like, Jay, you're stupid. I'm going to give you chest compressions. And then there's the jokes about the junior guy going to give me mouth to mouth and I'm getting an AED. And all of a sudden it's like, police, we're awesome. We're going to save this guy's life. He's probably having a heart attack. And I say, okay, right now I start acting what you would consider crazy. I start talking to myself. I start eating parts of the rug. I just think of stuff up that would be abnormal to someone. What would you do now? And the silence. Deafening. Deafening silence. Well, you know, why? Well, you're doing some crazy things. Well, all right. Well, my heart's not functioning here, right? Yeah. Well, is my brain part of my body? And that's something, like you said, when did this all hit you? And I say 2018 or a little bit before, but that's kind of one of the things I thought. You know, my brain's part of my body, just like my heart is, like my hand is, like my leg is, like my anything, any part of your body. So that's what destroying the stigma in that I think people need to realize it's part of the body just like your heart. Am I weak because I had a heart attack? Really? Is someone ever going to say that to someone? Yes, we may have poor choices in what we eat and what we do and uh, what we put in our body sometimes, but am I weak because my I had a heart attack? Then why am I weak because I have uh, a mental health condition? You're, you're playing my wheelhouse when you say that because I've, I've argued and if you work for an insurance company, fast forward for 30 seconds. But for me, I tell all my clients, you'll never lose a spot with me. Come in every three months, six months. Hey, I'm doing good. Now I need a little oil change about this. But I think that mental health should be just like a physical. Do it every three to six months, even if you're doing great. Hey, I'm doing great. That's awesome. Keep at it. You know what? Something happened and really bothered me. And I'm not just talking about first responders, just everyone in general. But with first responders, let's face it, you're more likely to see something that bothers you than what you know, we would consider the general population or civilians. And I hate to say civilians because I know that dispatchers are seen as civilians, but to me, they're part of the department personally. Yeah. yeah. No, that I, and I say that just in case I have any police officers in my classes that are not on that, they know where I stand right away. Yes, we joke with dispatchers, but when that baby isn't breathing or I can go a million different scenarios before we even know we're drinking a coffee in our car, before that's even coming across the radio or the CAD to us, they're talking that mom, dad, brother, cousin, sister, whatever, into helping that baby breathe again before we even get dispatched. And I've never been a dispatcher and I don't want to think of it this way, but I can imagine myself feeling helpless. Yes, I'm walking you through what you should be doing, but I'm on a phone, you know, and I can't myself, I could imagine feeling a, a lot of helplessness. And I don't want anyone that's a dispatcher to think that way, but I feel it's like, I, I wish I could go now, you know? Uh, so I, I don't know if I could put myself in that position, but yes, we need to, they are civilians, but they're not, they're, they're first responders just like us. I mean, I, the only side, the, my experience 
that's close to that. And I know your wife did the same thing. When you work for a crisis team for mental health, we do get those calls. And, you know, most people don't understand that there's a lot of work sometimes before what we call a section 12 in Massachusetts, but there's like, you know, 50 names for in different states for what they are to send people involuntarily to the hospital. I just do that. I did that for a while and I found that extremely stressful, extremely difficult. Not because I couldn't handle it, but some of it, it's life or death sometimes. And so I'm never going to say that was a dispatching thing. So for all my friends who are dispatchers or listening to this, not comparing it at all, just saying that's the closest thing I've ever had. And I know I found that difficult. Absolutely. I wanted to briefly interrupt this great conversation just to introduce my book. My book is called Finding Your Way Through Therapy. Ironic, isn't it? It's available on Amazon as well as Barnes and Nobles and where good ebooks are sold. In chapter eight, I discuss the unique challenges of first responders, dispatchers, and correctional staff. Hope you get a chance to read it because it is a great accompaniment to this conversation. The one thing that I wanted to bring up about stigma, you know, when it, this is something that I still see to this day, but you can correct me. You're obviously you're an officer. You're, you're there on a regular basis. I still think that there's a, within officers, there's still a lot of stigma in regards to going for help. Oh, you got to go see the shrink. Oh, you got to go see someone for help. <laughs> and I, I heard you laugh, but I mean, this is something that I've seen. And I don't know if that still exists, but that's still my experience with my clients that come in, our first responders. And they're even defensive with me. And I'm like, dude, I'm here for or whatever, but I'm a woman, I'm here for, for help. I mean, I'm not trying to screw you over from a job. And I think that part of the issue that occurs is that if I go see a shrink, I go see a mental health counselor, I'm going to lose my job and other guys will know or other women will know. So I don't know if that's still the case, but I wanted to ask you. Yeah. One of the running jokes, myself and Caitlin D, he have, like I said earlier, so we teach mental health first aid together. One of the running jokes we have is I always joke about the, and it's, I say joke, but it's not a joke, but is going across to the, uh, the, the employee assistance. Hey, you know what? Employee assistance programs are phenomenal. And she'll say, Jay is going to bash it in 20 minutes. No, I don't bash it. I think an employee assistance program works wonders for people. But I kind of tell officers this, you're afraid to lose your job or veterans because that's, that's one big thing that you know, veterans, they're, they're another population that is tough to deal with if you're not a veteran. And it's not that I don't believe in the employee assistance programs. I do. But when a police officer goes over there and not, like I said, not to get into detail, but says some horrific incident that happens, I'm not discounting the counsel that's listening to it, but is the person that maybe at a desk that files paperwork for their job, that's their career, nothing you know against that. Are they going to go up there with the same story? Because I know if I told some stories to some people, and they would be like, that's why it takes a special person to be a co-response clinician, just not any clinician, as you know, Steve. But like, if I told some of the stories that have affected me over the years to, like, to someone, they'd probably put me in a hospital. <laughs> and that's the feeling that police have. I can't tell them that finding you know, someone who may have drowned or a child incident, they're going to think, I've lost my mind. I can't handle it. And now the other thing we brought up early about the, the guardian versus the warrior, I'm here to protect people. Oh, now I'm weak. Now I'm weak because I'm having bad thoughts. I'm having flashbacks. I'm having recurring nightmares. I have anxiety. I, I have depression. Oh my God, if they put all this together, I'm not going to be a police officer. This is my career. That's all I know. And that all builds up. And next thing you know, you feel like everything you've worked for in your life, being a police officer, it, it's over. So destroying that stigma is tough. It's, it's tough with police officers. It's tough with veterans. I have some veterans that have come to me and said, Jay, you a clinician? Like I joke. I said, no, but I'll listen, man. I'll get you the right people. And you know, sometimes it is Steve. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's like, I only want to speak to a combat veteran. I said, well, dude, the list of clinicians who are combat veterans is pretty small. So right. you're going to have to open up to someone. Some of them do, some don't. I say, can I get you to someone who I trust? You know, and that's what I try and do, build that trust. So I'll get you to someone. Yeah, they're not a police officer. Yeah, they're not a veteran. No, they've never done it. But this is what they specialize in. You know, obviously, I'm not going to, I'm going to have my finger operated. I'm not going to go with a hot surgeon. But if I get a person who specializes in this and working, that's what I'm going to direct the person towards. You know, 
but it, it's that stigma. It, it's tough for police officers. Sometimes it's just, you know, years ago it used to be, and now people now will define this as self-medicating, but choir practices. Young officers now, when I say choir practice, and I'll give the definition, you're shaking your head, Steve, but choir practice. Oh, so yeah, I shouldn't shake you know, head. I know what you, you mean, know, but go you ahead. You know, is when officers at the end of a shift grab a couple of beers with each other, whether it be in a bar, a parking lot, whatever, you know, and they just chilled out. You talk to younger, younger officers now. I say choir practice and I, I get Bambi in the headlights. And not saying that's a good thing because, yeah, people can say, well, that's just self-medication, Jake. Well, you know what? Maybe it is. But we got together and we discussed what may have happened on shift. Sometimes the conversations to an outsider would be like, oh, my God, that's so morbid what you're talking about. But And you know this better than me, Steve. Coping strategy, I would say, correct? A hundred percent. You know, dark humor, black humor, whatever you want to call it, is a coping strategy for a lot of people who are first responders, correctional staff, medical staff, frankly. They have to deal with it in some ways. But I think that when we say it outside of that crowd, you get the, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and part of that, what it's turned into, and I've had this, I've needed to talk to people too, but it's like, maybe at the end of shift, you get off at midnight and there's that officer, you know, and you talk, but you've never had that conversation one well in the morning, three nights in a row after shift. And it's like, Guess what? Yeah, you may not be a, a clinician. You may not have a PhD. You may not have a master's, but you know what? You're listening to that person. And at that point, you know, after a couple of those times, maybe it is just you and that other officer venting, but maybe at that time, you have to have that hard conversation. Man, you need to go talk to someone. All right, well, I'm going to lose my job. Bro, is, I'd rather you lose your job, which more than likely isn't going to happen, than you lose your life. Okay. Yes, there's been struggles and yes, there's been wrestling matches over the years, but you know what? I can think of a lot of people who fought it, a lot of people who argued it, and they're still police officers today because they went to get the help. I know right now if I break my arm, it's going to heal and I'm going to go back to work at some point. If I get my mental health, if anyone gets their mental health, whether the police officer, anyone does what they need to do, recovery is possible. Right? It may not be easy. It may not be overnight, which it won't be, but your resiliency. Listen, everyone sits there and, oh, you're a police officer. You're tough. You're tough. You're tough. Well, great. You may be tough and strong, but are you mentally tough? Are, are you willing to go and, and discuss your problems with someone? Right. And, you know, you mentioned the groups. I mean, I, in every state, there are different ones. I, I really give a lot of props to the stress unit in Massachusetts. I know stress units in New York from dealing with them in the specific situation for first responders. And then there's the Center of Excellence for Firefighters in Maryland that does phenomenal work and never discount them. I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second here. You know, it is finding your way through therapy, my podcast. I can do whatever I want. One of the biggest problems I have with the mental health stuff is I hear that and I hear what you're saying. And I know you're not in that position, but I've had so many officers or people who wanted to be officers. They're like, oh, you're in mental health counseling. And then it becomes me writing letter after letter to say, look, I wouldn't recommend someone you know, I've worked this field for a long time. I'm in the community. My kids are in the community. If I thought this person was in danger, I wouldn't say, yeah, they're fine to be police officers. And there's a lot of still stigma at that level that I feel still exists from the higher ups. And that's my soapbox for today. But it's something that I've seen too many times and having to plead directly with some chiefs and like, why would I tell you this person's good? I'm in the community too. If I didn't believe it, I'm not going to say that. So it still exists, I think, sometimes at a higher level, and we just got to continue doing that education. And like you said, mental health, physical health, it's the same thing. Go get the help, get the support. This is just a part of our lives. But that's my, my little soapbox for, for today. So yeah. um, it is my I, podcast. Yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> Thank you for having me again. One thing, if I could just, I thought of that jumped in my mind based off one of your questions is what's an acceptable trauma for a police officer? And if I could just go into that for one second, you know, what do police do? Oh, they get caught chases and shootings. Well, I'll tell you right now, we don't get caught chases in Massachusetts because that's just, that's not how we do business here in most circumstances. And I think the statistics is, and I hope it stays this way, but 1% of police officers are getting an officer involved shooting. And, but people always talk about, well, acceptable trauma, Jay, is, you know, a dead child is a, this is a, that. But what about, and I never put this to thought until I saw 
He's a retired sergeant out of Maryland. And if I were to tell you he was shot at 19 times and in the head 14 times, and that wasn't the worst part of his life, you'd think I was crazy. But it wasn't the worst part of his life. The worst part of his life was growing up. He was abused as a child, watched his mother abused, watched his father get murdered, became a police officer in New Jersey. And obviously, as I, as I kind of you know foreshadowed, he was shot 14 times. How does that officer sometimes doesn't come out, goes to a domestic? And then you look and you wonder why this, this officer may be, and I've never been in a situation like this, but think of it this way. The officer is, in the, is at a domestic and he may be getting a little rough. Now we think that, oh, well, geez, that officer was in a shooting. Let's rally around him. Or that officer was at an unfortunate child died. Well, why is he acting like an idiot at, at a domestic? Well, all of us have pasts and we've all grown up in certain ways. And that affects that officer more than others. Now, I'm not condoning anything if the officer does anything illegal, but sometimes, and I use that example more because, unfortunately, domestics happen. And it's probably one of the you know, family problems in domestics, the ones we go to. But do we ever think of that officer that grew up, that's been resilient, grew up in a, in a violent household as a child, and whether whoever the aggressor was, and they think of that. Uh, could that come out at some point? And why don't we let that officer know, listen, yeah. You know, we go to domestics every day, unfortunately. It's a, it's a horrible part of being a police officer, but why aren't we helping this person deal with this? You know, especially think of that officer from New Jersey, that sergeant. Well, you know, we all come in with our baggage, whatever job we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just tend to have a little more of, um, you know, people, don't, as you said, the police don't get called to be like, Hey, Jay, I'm doing great. Just want to stop by, have coffee? No, no one does that. Well, me, maybe me and you, but we're not, I'm not making a police call when I'm doing that. I encourage that. I love to have coffee with people. I'll even buy. Right, I'll, get, I'll give out your cell phone at some point. You know, as we wrap up here, there's a couple of things I want to quickly touch base. I think about SISMs, and that's Crisis Intervention Stress Management or Crisis Intervention Stress Debriefing. Those are, there's two models that exist. You know, I'm, I'm trained in that. I actually, went to a training and the woman walked in and said, all right, so I can tell who's who by who's sitting in the room. You people in the back are police officers because you got to see everything that's in front of you. The guys in the middle, you're the firefighters because you need to be able to reach everything. And one of you's in front, I can see because that's the door. And the ambulance people are also in the middle. You mental health people, you're just all over the place. I, definitely, I don't know who you, where you're at, but if you're sitting at all different places, that's you guys. And she had it right. And, you know... I love the model. And at the same time, I'm not a huge fan of the model. And I would never say that it's not good. I would just say that I'm not a huge fan. And I've heard many people tell me about how being in a group processing crisis intervention, stress management, for those who don't know, it's a process of maybe a negative event, negative occurrence in the community. And then they bring in the people who were involved to discuss and process with mental health counselors, social workers, stuff like that. I've heard mixed reviews from, you know, first responders on that. And I don't know what your thoughts on that are on that. It's funny because I'll ask that in my classes and I ask officers that go to them. It's hard to explain. I don't want to speak out of school. However, if I ended up being, and I grew up Roman Catholic. If I said, hey, I'm going to be in that confessional over there or else we're going to have sit in a group and talk about the critical incident that happened the night before. We're going to go in the room first. We're going to go in the critical incident. We're going to stare each other and complain about why we're there. Are we getting, you know, I don't want to talk in front of other people. This is ridiculous. This is this. This is that. And anyone, any officer that says they're not like this, they can call me directly because I've officers come to me and say this. They'll do that in the group. But like I said, if I was to sit in that confessional, quote unquote, in an office and say, hey, you've got three o'clock, you've got 315, you've got 330, you've got 345, you've got four o'clock. Those, each one of those offices would show up. Now, that's not statistically proven, but they will. It, and it goes back to the stigma. I don't want to show my weakness in front of other people. However, I need help. And it's a tough thing. I think, how do I put this? Am I sold? Like you said, you're not you know, 100% on them. Do I think they work? Sure. But do I think that we should bring officers in and dispatchers in and first responders in firefighters paramedics you know clinicians who ride with us after a critical incident and talk about it? absolutely do i think it is productive 
A majority of the time, I don't because I think that stigma exists. But the, the, the good part is, I think if everyone was given a number at that, I've seen people reach out and have that quote unquote confessional. I've had, I have one off, I've, I've had officers in the past come up to me and be like, dude, I'm struggling with this, 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 and this has happened. And you think it's like, all right, well, they just had a critical incident debrief. Well, why am I going to critique him on that when that person's coming to me asking for help? And at that point, I think I alluded to it earlier, actually may have even said it. When is it time where my non-expertise in mental health is a call to Steve, is a call to Caitlin, is a call, and I'm just throwing out names and no no specific order, is a call and saying, hey, can you get, I'm, I'm going to get them to therapy. I'm going to get this officer, this dispatcher, this first responder. I'm going to get them to talk to you, but they want, they don't want it out in the open. They want to talk. That's kind of the way I look at it. The group part is, it takes a lot. It takes a lot for a first responder to open up in a group. And you know, as much as I do, getting firefighters, dispatchers, police officers, or anybody who, and EMTs or paramedics who responded to a new, uh, negative event or adverse event, I think is the official word we're supposed to use. I think that it's hard to get all that group in that room. And I also think that by getting, by the time you get that group in, it's three, four days removed. And if you've been faced with trauma before, your defense mechanisms have all kicked in very, very well and defended you, Uh, whether it is your own thoughts and stuff like that. But also, as I, I call it your medication, and people use different type of medications for that. But that's my view. Do I think that they can be successful? I think that people can be successful with that, but I agree with you wholeheartedly that there's got to be a method of the confessional, you call it. I call it more like, look, you don't need, you, here's a phone call. Give a call to Caitlin. Give a call to Sarah. Give a call to whoever. And I'm, I'm, I'm also throwing out names, no one in particular. That might be more more effective, but... As we wrap up, I really want to talk a little bit about, I've worked in a drug court and I love my work in the drug court. And I know that you've worked with the veterans court for a while. And I work with a lot of of, um, vets also, you know, first responders, vets. I mean, it seems like it's hand in hand now. You know, I do appreciate everything that we do in there. How do you feel working with vets in a mental health, whatever court, I think it's it's called a veterans court still. Yeah, the Veterans Treatment Court, yep. Yeah, I, I think that we call them recovery courts sometimes too, yep. depending on yep. where we're at. Is there a difference between working with a vet versus maybe perhaps someone who is in law enforcement, first responders type of jobs? Yeah, it is. I, I never. Sometimes when I would see veterans do things, I'm like, why would they do that? But then, I don't know. The best way to explain it is, you know, you've got, you know, police officers, they go, they go on this, this road, but veterans brings in all all walks of life. And that's not saying all walks of life can become, can't become police officers, but you've got all fates, all races, everything comes in into this. So people with diverse backgrounds. And what I see there is it's, it's tough being a police officer there because the one thing I like to say first and foremost to some of the, the veterans that I deal with there for one quarter turn the wrong way, I'd be sitting right there. And it stinks because I wear a uniform now based on my current position. And I walk in the court and I want them to be open with me. I want them to talk to me. I want them to, you know, we have things called mentors or civilians that help out the veterans who are in crisis and in court. And I want them to be that, they, that way with me. But at the end of the day, myself and Lieutenant Downing, who also is, uh, he's our court officer that helps out in veterans court and recovery court it's tough because I'm a police officer and I totally understand. But what I try and let some of the, the participants know is man for a turn here or there, I'd be right. I, I could be right there. You know, I look and I hear stories of what you've done and I'm thinking, geez, I was almost there or wow. Could that have been me? And it's not a bad thing because these uh, veterans are in there actually getting treatment. Right. Um, and I'm not sure, I'll, I'll let you you speak, Steve. There's a couple of things I want to say about Veterans Court. To, I, I like, even with officers, clear up the misconceptions, but I'll let you keep going and I can add it in later. Well, no, I, you know, for me personally, I, you made an excellent point. You talked about, you know, a quarter turn left, a quarter turn right, whatever the case may be. I've said to people like, 
where I've been in my life at times, I'm lucky that I'm not sitting in that chair and you're doing therapy with me. And I have a past, we all have a past, and you might have a current past that's going to be the past in 10 years and you can change from that. And I use that as a good way to do, when I did, we called them drug courts, we now call them recovery courts. And I do that with my clients too. He's like, oh, I screwed up this or I screwed up that. And I'm like, okay, great. You know what? We're all close to that, but we can change. And I use that as a motivation just like you do. But veterans court have been historically more difficult than a recovery court because of the complexities of the cases. So that's why, you know, I was asking the question because veterans courts, most people think, oh, it's trauma. (laughs) Reducing a veteran to trauma is such a disservice to veterans in my opinion. So, (laughs) yeah, no, no, absolutely. Like you said, and this isn't a scientific number, but I will say 99% of anyone that asks me about veterans court is like, wow, that's awesome. That's great. And then there's that 1% that have come to me and will be like, well, why are you giving veterans a break? And I joke with them. I go, veterans court? I, you know, Sometimes I'd rather take my chances in regular court, but you don't commit a crime. And I, I want to put this in a, in a nice way. If you're a veteran, you commit a crime. You don't go to veterans. There isn't like, oh, you're going to veterans court. When we introduced it, and you know, Steve said too, it's veterans treatment court. All right. Veterans commit crimes and they go to regular court to include, you know, and I'll say how you get into veterans court, but in a second, but it's like, there needs to be a treatment need, right? Is there an alcohol dependence? Is there a drug dependence? Is there mental underlying mental health causes? Is there, you know, this isn't veteran commit crime, veterans court. No, no. Well, no, sorry. They did a, uh, let's just say, for example, they did a B and E. Okay. Do they have a treatment need? Nope. And they refuse all treatment. Okay. Well, then they stay in regular court. But if there is a need based on VA or, you know, some veterans are VA connected, some are not VA connected, that's another day. That's a podcast in itself. <laughs> exactly. But they come in and then the VA, the, the veterans court, the way it is, veterans treatment court, the way it is, is, is structured. And what needs to be known, the misconceptions also with not giving veterans breaks. When they go into veterans court, it can't be a crime that you can be indicted for. Best way for me of saying this, it can't be a felony you can go to state prison over. Okay. To include a third, for example, a third OUI is a felony. You can technically, under the law, go to prison for it, not jail, house correction, prison. And that needs to be something the district attorney's office works on with the defense attorney and the judge in the court of jurisdiction, and they may knock it down and I can go into the complexities of, oh, now it's only a second offense. It's a third, but it's a second. Any sex offense, any arson on top of those, even though some may be in a misdemeanor category, those are not allowed. Yes. Do some people that commit arson, do they need treatment? Absolutely. But it's not in the spirit of the veterans treatment court. That being said, uh, there are veterans treatment courts, Suffolk County, uh, Plymouth County, Essex, Middlesex, where I'm at, uh, some of the courts in Western Mass, uh, Hampshire. Um, There isn't one right now in in Worcester County. It's a huge void. It's nothing I can control. I I hope that that changes soon. But if you know a veteran that unfortunately has some treatment needs and and is in the um, judicial, has got themselves in the criminal justice system, that may be an option. You know, the how I've always explained uh, the treatment court that we do when you talk about felonies and all that, I explain it high risk. It's got to be high risk with high need. Awesome. And people are like, oh, man, I don't want the first DUI. The <laughs> first DUI, we're going to make it worse for them if we give them treatment that's like three months of 90 meetings and 90 days. No, that's, that's not going to be helpful to them. The third DUI makes sense, but I know it could be escalated. But the best way I explain it is that I don't want the person who sells drugs, I want the person who consumes the drugs. True. And, and we have had clients in veterans court that have been arrested for, you know, if you saw it in a paper, like, oh my goodness, this person got caught with firearms. Well, like I said, there's another podcast. And then oh, the one, <laughs> and, and there also has been you now people that have dealt drugs. Have some been successful? Sure. Have they dealt to feed their, you know, I hate to say feed their need, but to supply the habit? Yes. Maybe they were drug dealers, but why did they get there? And then there are others that they're 
dealing drugs for the wrong, like you just brought up, they're dealing for the wrong circumstances. And I'm not condoning any of it. Most of my career has been narcotics. But if you look at the treatment needs of that person, why are they doing it? Do they have severe depression? Do they have anxiety? Are they diagnosed PTSD? Why? What What happened to them? Did this happen to the training accident? Did they Were they in XYZ deployment? Oh, we can go down a million roads. And this is discussed and voted upon to make sure people are in the right place for the right treatment. Having the judge there, having the DA there, having the defense there, having the police there, having there's no. a, there's a huge team for that. So, but you know, Jay, as we, I'm going to wrap up here. First of all, uh, Jay Bob, thank you very much. This has thank been you. phenomenal. I really enjoyed our conversation. I think that we came up with like three or four more ideas for podcasts. Uh, <laughs> might, I'm, might, I'm might, ready, might, man. <laughs> we, we might might need to do this like a seasonal thing. And when, when, once, a, once a season, me and you can uh, have this conversation. But I truly appreciate it. I know we, we've known each other for a long time. We've been friends for a long time. But I do appreciate the time, your insight. And I hope that people really enjoyed it. Again, this is hopefully one of many, hopefully with you. And thank you for being here. Thank you. And the, the one last thing, thank you for having me. And one thing I put out, my department allowed me to uh, represent, you know, represent them, the city of Framingham police. If any police officer out there, dispatcher, first responder has any issues, they don't feel like they can come forward. They need any help. Jay Ball, Jason Ball, Framingham police, call me, leave a voicemail, email me, whatever. I'll get you the right person. I'll let you feel that that stigma, you know, reduce that stigma for you. And that's uh, Framingham, Massachusetts. Hopefully a podcast will leave Massachusetts at some point. <laughs> that's big time, Steve. <laughs> I know. I want to be big time. I want to be New York, baby. But again, Jason, thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Well, that's it for episode two. Thank you, Jay, for the great conversation about mental health, how it affects first responders, the resources, and things that are being done there, as well as recovery courts for veterans. And I know there are some for individuals with substance abuse, as well as mental health issues. If you want to reach Jay, his email is benevolentguardianconsulting at gmail.com. I will put it in the show notes so that way you can just click on it if you are concerned about the spelling. In the next episode, we will talk about what to look for in the therapist and the questions you may want to ask as well as what you ultimately want to get out of therapy and make sure that you respect that. I'm your host, Steve Bissell, and I will talk to you soon.